old. Um, I had a family move in up the road from me, a couple of doors up, and uh, they had two boys, and they loved sport. And I was pretty excited about this because Mrs. Kilpatrick, who had lived there before, wasn't maybe quite so easy to hang out with. Uh, one, was, one of the boys was my age, one's a couple of years younger, and not only did they love sport, but they, they played sport as much as they could. They played sport on their PlayStation as much as they could. In fact, it probably wasn't a PlayStation by then. I think it was an Amiga 600. Pretty cool. That's how old I am. Um, and they watched sports as much as they could. So I liked them. They were great. Now, there was only one slightly strange thing about these guys. They supported Celtic. Now, I didn't know any other Celtic supporters at the time except one uh, who was an Italian. And so that, for me, had kind of explained things. And so he was different, and that's okay. Um, uh, but these guys supported Celtic, so I had to try and wrap my mind around this. My dad was an East, Fa- East Fife fan, poor guy. And everyone at school supported Rangers. Nevertheless, these guys were into sports like me, so I decided I would be friends with them anyway. That was good of me, wasn't it? Good. Now, they had season tickets to Celtic Park. And one day, the younger of the two couldn't go. So I got the call. And uh, I said, look, do you want to come to the football? Of course I do. So I went along, and I wish that they had iPhones and other kind of smartphones at the time so that I could have recorded it. I went onto the Celtic bus with uh, my friend, Paul, and uh, got on the bus, sat behind the priests, and uh, sat with all these other Celtic fans. Now, it was coming up for Christmas, so they had green hats on, not red ones, Santa hats, but green. Good touch, I thought. And they were singing, and there was chanting all the way to the ground. And when we got there to paradise... As Celtic fans call it. I was amazed. It was this huge place. It was like a, a cathedral, an incredible place dedicated to their heroes on the park. Now, just before the game, Celtic have a tradition of singing a particular song, and it begins, Hail, hail, the Celts are here. Then star player Henrik Larsson got the ball, and they started singing his song. I'm not going to sing it. Henrik Larson, Henrik Larson is the king of kings. I guess they sang one, that one at mass as well, right? Now, we won. That's right, I said we. I was a convert. By the time I got home, I had the words nailed down to we are Celtic supporters, faithful through and through, over and over. We will follow you. To this day, I'm a Celtic fan. Sorry. So after a few visits to paradise, it didn't take long, though, before I discovered that these people were just like all the other people who I knew. These guys uh, were just like us. They were just like everybody else I knew. Now, I had some pretty crazy Rangers fans. They were really big on following Rangers, and uh, their whole lives were oriented around their team. But this is true for these guys as well. So these guys I got on the bus with, if Celtic won, they were jubilant. If Celtic uh, won and Rangers lost, they were even delirious. 
If Celtic lost, they were heartbroken. For some, their satisfaction, their hope, their passion was centered around that, their football team. Now, I coach rugby in my spare time, and yesterday I was on the bus. I got chatting to our club photographer, and he was telling me about a Ranger supporter back in Northern Ireland, um, where he's from. And he said what he would do is he would work in Dublin through the week. He worked in construction, and he would work from Monday to Friday in construction. And then he'd come back Friday night, and he'd dump his bag, all his washing, and then he'd go straight back out the door because he was a mad Rangers fan. And he would go to every game, home and away, no matter the cost, he is there. Now, he was married, had kids. Didn't really work very well for marital bliss. And so, um, unfortunately, he, he did. He got, I mean, as you might expect, they separated. And actually, there was all sorts of hurt and brokenness as a result of it. And it was all for a football team. Now, for some of you, you're thinking, football, I don't care about football. Why do people care about football? Why do they get so excited about it? Why do they jump up and down when their team scores? That is weird. But for others, for others of us, football's everything. For you, it might be relationships. It might be a political ideology after this week. Maybe you are down in the dumps or you're jubilant because of what happened on Thursday. For others, it's obsessive hobbies. As humans, we are forever putting other people and other things on the throne of our lives, mostly ourselves. But Christmas screams this. There is only one true king worthy of all your hope and your worship. King Jesus has come to bring about a kingdom, the kingdom of God. And Christmas says, get the pretenders to the crown off the throne and bow at the feet of the true king of kings, the majestic king who has come. So let me uh, read from Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. So if you have a Bible, turn with me. To Matthew, first book of the New Testament, and turn to the second chapter, and we'll read the first 12 verses. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. 
And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then he opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray that you'd open our eyes to the Christmas truth. Show us the King. Show us his glorious ways, Father. Take our pathetic attempts to dethrone you and enthrone other things, enthrone ourselves, enthrone our football teams even. Lord, I pray that we would look to the throne and see one name. We'd see you, Jesus. Pray, Father, that this morning we'd leave this place with a new sense of joy in our hearts because we know that there is a king who fulfills. There is a king who reigns. There is a king who rules, who loves us, who adores us. There is a king who has come, and his kingdom is glorious, and we get to join in with that kingdom and worship the king. In your name, Jesus. Amen. God's king and his pretenders. There are many pretenders, but one king. We put all kinds of people and things on the thrones of our lives. But for Israel, it was the real king that they wanted. They wanted a real king, a literal king. I'm not talking about King Jesus right now. They, they just wanted a king. But they were never really supposed to have a king like the other nations. Moses had declared that Yahweh, God himself, was to be exalted as their king alone. And so when the people come to Samuel the prophet and they say to him, look, we, we want to have a king. We, we want a king like the other nations. Samuel was deeply troubled. And he asked God, what should I do? They want another king. What should I do? Samuel realized that they'd rejected God. And God decided he would let them receive the consequence of their choices. Let them have their king. You've heard the phrase, power corrupts, right? But the truth is, people are corrupt. And when they're in power, it all too easily rises to the surface. God tells Samuel to warn the Israelites that their new king will use and abuse them. Their new king is going to let the power get to his head. And that's exactly what happened. Saul was the first on the throne, and it ended in disaster. He deceives himself into thinking he's a great king, and he starts making decisions without even listening to God. And do you know the sad, saddest thing about it? He doesn't even realize it's happening. The reign of King Herod in Matthew 2 reminds me of the reign of King Saul. His reign is about self-exaltation. It's self-preservation at all costs. 
And so it's no surprise that Herod is deeply troubled, that he's alarmed at the Magi's inquiry. Where is the king of the Jews? It's a direct threat, isn't it? I mean, he's the king in Judea. So, of course, it's a, it's a direct threat to his power. Now, I should hope that we are absolutely disgusted by the reaction of Herod that happens in the following verses. But I'd suggest we shouldn't be so naive to think that there isn't a King Herod in all of us. I imagine that the argument or the arguments that took place between that ranger supporter and his wife were pretty extreme because rightly she might have had just a little bit of an, an issue with his obsession over rangers. I mean, he's literally, he was literally never there. It's the same, isn't it? It's that anger that wells up when our, whatever is on the throne of our lives is, is threatened. We can see it in the response of Jerusalem, verse 3. All Jerusalem is disturbed. We don't know why they are so troubled, but I, I'd suggest it's fear. That's the reaction that comes when you're beholden to a king, when you're beholden to someone who is enthroned on your life. These guys had the religious elites in Jerusalem. They had struck some deals with Herod. And so Herod had built them a new temple. He'd restored the temple. He'd also extended the Temple Mount, and that was huge for Israel. It would have felt like a victory, but the reality is that they were compromising their faith. And it even gets to the point that here are these magi, these wise men from the east, these foreigners, these foreigners who Isaiah had warned them about because magi are astronomers. They're people who study the stars. They're people who look to other gods. And so they had, war they'd had warnings already. And yet it's those people who recognize a sign, a star, means that the king is coming. And what's the response of the religious elites? They basically give up this potential Messiah to this king that they know will do all that needs to be done to preserve his own throne. And then they just continue doing what they've always done. They go to the temple, they open the scrolls, they read from God's word, they pray on street corners. Even church, even religion can become a throne or it can become the thing that you put on your throne that actually keeps you from Jesus. That's what's happened here. They've, they've been caught up in religion instead of seeing the signs and getting giddy, excited. Let's go and see. Maybe it is the King. Maybe it is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior to come. See how it's flipped? Samuel, the faithful prophet, 1,000 years earlier, was troubled by Israel's desire for a king who was not God. Now God comes as king, and they are troubled. Are you troubled by the majesty, the rule, and the reign of Jesus in your life. 
Now, we like to think that we are immune from what the Pharisees and the Sadducees struggled with in the Bible. We like to put ourselves in the shoes of the humble when we read through the Gospels. Might I suggest to you that the Gospels are written in such a way that often we're supposed to see ourselves as Pharisees and Sadducees who have a worship problem, who are bowing to the wrong king. Guys, do not let religion take you. Run instead to Jesus. Pursue him at all costs like the Magi did. As a church, we're committing to praying every day from now until the end of the year that this city would be revived in our generation. But when it comes, will you see it? Or will you write it off? Will you write it off as emotionalism? Will you write it off as a a crazy sect? It needs to be weighed by God's Word. But once we've weighed it by God's Word and we see, ah, this is what we should expect. Even if it freaks you out, run to Jesus. Join in. Be a part of His advancing kingdom. In our rational, secular world, it can be very easy for us just to write off the miraculous, write off the power of God advancing in this place. Guys, let's not be quick to do that. Let's be people who weigh up what's in God's Word, and then when we see something of Christ, we run to it, not away from it. Matthew began his gospel with a family tree. Now, the reason he did that was because he wants us to see that the promised king was born into David's line from the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse was David's dad. So that's why when you see that little phrase, that that literally just means from the family tree of David. Now, here's what Nathan, David's best friend, prophesied over him, over David, a thousand years before Jesus turns up. Okay, 2 Samuel 7. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over, after you die, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Then, 300 years later, the prophet Isaiah said this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. And that's what we're seeing here. The Magi, these kings from the east, from other nations, have come looking for a king because a bright light has appeared over Israel. Could this be the promised king from David's family tree? And we also see another pattern. Right after King Saul came came King David, this king who was the greatest king in Israel until Jesus, and he was the king who promised hope 
not just by the prophecies that would come, through, come true about his family line, but because he was a great king, a man after God's own heart. And even when he made mistakes, grievous, terrible mistakes, he came running back to God. And I think King David, if he had been there in the first century and he'd seen that star, he'd be there because he was after God's own heart. But after David came uh, sorry, before David came King Saul, after King Herod comes King Jesus, before King Jesus is King Herod. There's this pattern going on here where there's this king that's trying to claim his own authority. He's all about himself, about self-exaltation. And then there's one that comes after him, and they are very different. They're after the glory of God. They're after exalting God with their whole lives. They're ex- after not self-exaltation, but the exaltation that we're all called to and we're all made for, and that is to worship the King of Kings. To worship the true King, God. The kings of Orient, these magi, tell us that worshiping Jesus and pursuing Jesus with all of our hearts is the wisest thing we can do. They traveled hundreds of miles following a star, pursuing the king. And when they see him, verse 10, they are overjoyed. They bow down, they worship, and they give him their treasures. God himself, the true king, has come in humility from his heavenly throne, and he is so worthy of our worship. That was God's king and their pretenders. What pretenders are trying to claim the throne of your life? Are you looking to the true king? But there's also this gift that we need to claim for ourselves that has been gloriously given to us. And there will be many other gifts that are given to us that are also like pretenders. Most of us want to create this perfect Christmas scene at this time of year, don't we? We, we need to buy the perfect gifts for people and, and cook the most wonderful meal. And we, by the way, isn't that random, that meal? We were talking about this earlier. Why on earth do we have turkey for like the greatest celebration that we have all year in our calendar? Why do we have turkey? It's like the worst bit of meat. Why do we do that? Anyway, that was, by the, no, that was just by the side. Okay. Maybe, maybe it's all just subliminal advertising and the mixture of gifts, lights, food, and relationships on display, but we want the perfect Christmas scenes, don't we? So what's it all about? Why is that so important to us? Well, the Bible tells us that one day we will be in the new creation, enjoying the generosity of God, feasting and singing songs together forever around the great light of Jesus sitting on his throne. We even bring a tree inside our homes during Christmas. It's, it's almost like we're trying, to, it is almost like we're trying to rediscover or discover this, this kind of heaven on earth, Revelation's description of the New Jerusalem, this kind of garden city temple that has fruitful life growing everywhere 
around us, this river of life that runs through it, and this tree, and there's a glorious tree of life, and we, we see the healing of the nations in the leaves. We have all these incredible pictures. And if we observe really closely to what we're doing at Christmas, I even think we try to do the bit of Jesus. We even try to be like Him. Now, some will hate Christmas and can't stand Michael Bublé croaking away in the background. But we probably hate it because it's, our experience is not this heaven and earth that's been portrayed in all the adverts that you've been forced to watch on the TV. And that's often all that people have for company. And so there's this kind of horrible torture that has to take place where people are watching these adverts on the telly with families looking so happy and in this kind of perfect scene, and that's just not where they're at. But even those who can't stand it, can't stand it because deep down all we want is this scene of generosity and feasting and singing and love and light. For us, giving without receiving is painful. Even the parent who works tirelessly for her kids and family to have that most wonderful time, they want a little bit of appreciation. Just a little bit of appreciation from their kids. And it would really help if they had a partner who showed a little bit of thanks, maybe with a nice gift and a healthy dose of thoughtfulness that goes into that gift, right? People want to be appreciated even when they're working really hard for others. The reality is that even the most selfless of people just want a little bit of appreciation for all their efforts. We might begin the day on Christmas Day with great visions for what it's going to be like. And we set it out and we try to produce our own little piece of heaven, a kind of peace on earth to all mankind, at least in our own home. Before long, though, the kids break their toys. Your husband buys you a terrible present. And you remember why you didn't want to invite your auntie again as she gets blittered, says something really harsh to your mum. Suddenly you find yourself getting more and more crabbit. And you just think, I oh, happy bleeding Christmas. Your little slice of heaven has been destroyed and trampled on, and honestly, it often feels more hellish than heavenly. We had an evangelist called Glenn Scrivener come to Gateway, uh, the church that Lindsay and I got sent from uh, to plant Glasgow Grace, come along one Sunday, and he said this, the generosity and the jealousy, the grace and the grasping are all jumbled together. It's quite a cocktail. But then again, that's true of the whole world, wouldn't you say? Breathtaking beauty and jaw-dropping evil. So, what is the antidote to that? How do we overcome the need to have our generosity reciprocated? And like so many do, how can we know that others are at least attempting this heaven-on-earth scene when all we have is a television for company? Do we just live with that horrible tension? Well, the answer is God's gift. The king is here. 
and he satisfies all your desires. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but gain eternal life. And here's the glory. You, like a spoilt, sleep-deprived brat on Christmas Day, could never repay him, and he still loves you. He adores you. He died so that you could have life. Romans 11, 35 through 36 says this, who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So, you want a a really good Christmas, a, a wonderful Christmas? No matter your circumstances, no matter what your family dynamics are like, no matter how your kids react to all the lovely things that you get them, no matter what your partner gives you, no matter how lonely you feel and isolated when everybody else is with their families, come to Jesus like the Magi with great joy. You need only one gift this Christmas, and it's Jesus. Receive the gift of Christ, and like these wise men, worship him as king of kings. That's what their gifts were all about. Now, there are all sorts of theories, usually developed later, about what these gifts were all about, symbolism. But actually, it's quite simple. They just declared in every way that he was king, that he deserved these gifts as king of kings. The Magi declare, God is the true king, and he is here with us. After King David's reign came Solomon, and Solomon was wealthy. I mean, that guy was minted. Now, if you were to take his equivalent wealth today, he would be worth about, wait for it, $2.2 trillion. With his great reputation for riches and wisdom, Queen Sheba, an Arabian queen who was pretty wealthy herself, she visited Solomon. And do you remember what he, uh, she brought him? Spices and gold, appropriate only for the most wealthy, successful of kings. Here's the thing. Jesus makes Solomon's wealth look pathetic. He is the king of heaven. All things belong to him. They always have, and they always will. Yet, he gave it all up. He laid aside his glory and came to earth as one of us. In fact, King Jesus is so different to any other king or any other leader that he would rule and reign from a cross, from a cruel form of Roman execution. Christmas leads us to the cross, and Matthew alludes to it really early on here. Chapter 2, verse 2, he takes the words of the Magi, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Jesus the king of kings laid down his own crown of glory and took up a crown of thorns, and it was pressed into his skull. He was raised up, but he was raised up onto a cross 
with a crown of thorns and above him a sign mocking him, saying, King of the Jews. When he hung there, he took our sinful attempts to enthrone anything except from God, and he died. He took the punishment that we deserved for that. God was punished for our idolatry. We dethroned them in our hearts for cheap substitutes, yet he wears our curse. Genesis 3, after the curse, what do we see? The emergence of thistles and thorns. Jesus, King of the universe, King of kings, takes the curse that was for us, for us who walked away from God and made ourselves king and made other things king instead of God, and he wears that curse for us so that we can be crowned with life, with the glory of eternal, everlasting life. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, our thorns compose so rich a crown. One of the great church fathers, Augustine of Hippo, said it this way, who rules and reigns from a piece of wood? It is Christ. Christmas reminds us that we must not just keep doing what we're doing and busying ourselves. When we do, we are beholden to false kings. But when we slow down and we pursue Jesus, the King of kings who has always been, the King who has come to earth, the King who will always be, is also the King who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is your present joy on this earth. Want to be satisfied? Want your thirst for life to be quenched? Jesus. Go to Jesus. Go to the cross. Fall down before him. Confess that you have tried to make kings and queens. You've tried to enthrone things that you should never have tried to enthrone. And instead, look to him, the true king who is on the throne. So when the kids break the toys, or you're sat with a microwave meal for one, or you're not even sure if your spouse loves you anymore this Christmas, turn to Jesus and receive him. When you're tempted to think of that obsession that you have, that thing that you go to to try and give you satisfaction and it keeps failing you, don't go. Go into your room, shut the door, open your Bible, worship the King. He is here. He's in this room by the power of the Spirit. If you believe, He's in your heart. He is here, and he is unfailing love, a love not dependent on the performance of the team on the pitch, not dependent on your family, not dependent on how many times you've been to the gym this week, 
not dependent on the perfect Christmas scene, not dependent on whether you got that boy or that girl, not dependent on what, what people think of you, not even the people who are closest to you, but on His blood as He rules and reigns from the cross. That is where your dependence is. That is where your satisfaction is. He adores you, and He will never, ever, ever, ever let you go. Come, worship the King of all kings. His majesty is matchless. And do not be deceived by the pretenders to the throne. Come, receive the King as the everlasting gift. And do not be deceived by the wrapping of a modern Christmas scene. Let's pray.